Good morning. Our scripture, the passage on which our teaching is based, is Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate to heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Check. Hello, how are we? Good. Um, so here's how this is going to go. I've been, I've been sick all night, like not keeping food down. So I have a bucket in the side. If I go for the bucket, class dismissed. Yeah? We're good? Can we do that? Let's do that. Um, so, sorry. I just had to preface that with something. I didn't want to surprise you. Um, some people don't like surprises. I know I don't. So... Um, okay, so this is, this is one of those passages that um, is sort of a, I like to call them like sleeper passages. Like there, there's, it, you, you pass by it so many times and then one day you kind of open it up and, and you see something new that you've never seen. And uh, that kind of happened to me this week while I, was, while I was studying this. I was planning on going at it from a different angle, but um, it, it just sort of awokened uh, here when I, when I was reading it this week. So... Um, I'm going to try to be able to... Fo- I've got, got some drugs in me right now. Legal ones, of course. Over-the-counter medicine. But I think I, think I do my best work when, when I'm on, when I'm on these, these sick drugs because the filters tend to shut down in my brain. And I just say whatever comes to my mind. So, we're going to have some fun. I'm going to have fun. I don't know about you guys. Um, so, why don't we pray and we're going to read this passage and, uh, and uh, we'll get into this. Father... We love you, and I, I ask for your grace this morning. I ask for your, um, for your peace, for your guidance. Um, 
bring to mind all the things that I've been able to study this week and uh, give me a little more strength and um, encourage us. There's a lot of people here who are um, going through very difficult things, and uh, uh, we need your guidance. We need to know that you have a plan, that you are here, and uh, that that you are working around us in our lives, in our community, in our families, all of it. We love you, God, in your name. Amen. All right, so Jacob's journey has begun. It, uh, um, it, it started off a little rough for Jacob. It was very difficult for a little while. Um, he's having trouble figuring out who he is. He's having trouble figuring out exactly what his place is. Um, he's striving for blessing. He's dressing up like other people to try to earn the favor of his father. He's all kinds of stuff. That, that he's doing to try to sort of gain the blessing um, from God, from his father, from, from all of his family. He wants respect. He wants all of this, but, but he can't quite get it. And so um, what happens is after he steals the blessing from his brother Esau, Esau sort of threatens him and says, look, when, when dad passes away, I'm going to kill you. That's basically what he says. And so... His mom, Rebecca, kind of takes it really seriously and says, you should probably go somewhere. You should probably leave. And so he does. He packs up and he kind of leaves. He, he doesn't take anything with him. And he heads towards his uncle Laban's house. Um, he's going there probably to find a wife um, to get started on, on whatever he thinks God has for him here. But he doesn't seem to have a lot of direction. And so we're going to start by looking at verse, um, we're going to start in verse 10 here. So read this with me here. It goes, it goes Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. Now, um, it doesn't tell us where he is um, at all. It, uh, and and it, you sort of have this, this question. It says, it says um, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. It doesn't say where he was. I know later on it kind of says where he was. But at this point, it, it doesn't say where he is when he has this dream. Um, one of the points of, of, of stories like this is to explain where these places got their names. Um, one of the points of this passage is to let the Israelites know this is how this place got its name. Something, something dramatic happened here to... to uh, to, to warrant this name, because we find out later in verse 19 that the place is called um, Bethel, um, which basically means house of God, Bethel. Um, El is the word for God, Bethel is the place for dwelling and for home, for house. Um, and so one of the reasons that this story is told is to tell us how it got this place, the, the name house of God, um, because at one point Jacob kind of sits up and says, surely God is here, like God is, God is living here. Um, and, it, and it doesn't seem like that important of a place. But, and, and so, but the question is kind of why. Why did the people need to know where this place got its name? And so the entire point of this, of, of one, of the, one of the points of this story is to teach the Israelites and all who would come after them, us, ourselves included, something very, very important about God that people have always had a hard time kind of grasping. Um, there's something that they wanted us to know, um, and it has to do with how God interacts with the world. Um, and so let's look at sort of some of the elements of this, um, this passage. Um, the first thing we see is, is, like I mentioned, it says in verse 11, he came to a certain place. It doesn't say where. It just calls it a certain place. It, it, it doesn't. It's nowhere important. It's a, it's a pass-through place. Nobody really lives there. Um, it's, it's not important. It's just somewhere. It's just somewhere he happened to be. He didn't, 
he wasn't heading to be there. It, the, night, the sun went down when he was there, so he stopped to sleep. It also says that he stayed there that, that night. Um, again, it was of no importance to him. He just needed a place to sleep, and so he stops wherever he is when the sun goes down and he sleeps. Um, it says he used a stone for a pillow. Um, the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head to lay down in that place to sleep. Now, this is interesting because really you would use anything except a rock for a pillow. You could take off your shoes and use them as a pillow. Anything really is better than a rock for a pillow. This is, this is really the, the narrator's way of saying he didn't have anything. Um, not, even, not even a pillow. I used, to, I used to think when I was a, okay, this, the filter turned off. When, when I was a kid, I, I, you know, you play that game, guys always play that game, you sit around and come up with the best band names, you know? I was like, well, if there was a really scary rock and roll band, I would call it Pillow Famine, because there's nothing scarier than a Pillow Famine. Um, and so anyways, this is sort of what's going on. He didn't even have a pillow. He had nothing to put his head on. Um, and it says the sun had set, and so... Let's sort of lay this out. No money in the middle of nowhere. No place to stay. The sun is going down. It's the epitome of rock bottom. He has nothing. He just lays down. He's like, oh, here's a rock. And he just lays his head down, goes to sleep. Um, and so remember where we just came from. He was the youngest son. His entire life centered around being some, someone better, someone more important. Um, he, he was dressing up like his brother so his father would mistake him for his brother and give him blessings. He was trying to impress his family. He was always trying to to just be someone better, not basically not be who he was. Um, and now he finds himself, after being blessed, after receiving what he always wanted, the blessing, he thinks things are going to get better, but now, now he finds himself maybe a few days later, destitute in the middle of nowhere, all by himself with nothing. Um, and so in this situation, he lays down and falls asleep, and he has this dream, and this dream starts up in verse 12. It says, He dreamed a dream, uh, he, oh, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, um, this is really the only time in the Old Testament this word for ladder is used. It's not even really the word that should be used there, but um, sort of in the English, this is sort of, I guess, what they would use to describe it, because um, what we're actually talking about here, the word literally means a flight of steps or a ramp. Um, you know, a ladder, only one person can be on at a time. A flight of steps, it's, it's sort of many things. Um, in the ancient mind, when you would read this, instantly you would know what they're talking about. They're talking about one of these. This is called a ziggurat. Um, this is, um, scholars are pretty positive this is what this is talking about. He sees a ziggurat. Um, it's not a ladder that doesn't even quite fit with the Hebrew there. They didn't really have anything like that. Um, and so he falls asleep and he sees one of these. Now, um, he, you know, these things are all over the world. They were used for worshiping deities. We find them in South America. We find them in Mexico. We find them in ancient China. We find them all over the Middle East. They were buildings that were used for um, deity worship. Um, they, there was always, they were always very, very tall. There were steps leading to the top. Um, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, this is also what it would have been talking about, a ziggurat. Um, um, they believed that God dwelled at the top, and the priests, whoever was employed, whatever they would call them, um, to offer the sacrifices to whatever God they worshipped, would climb these steps all the way to the top and meet with God up there. Some of these would be massive, incredibly tall. Um, now, um, 
Ziggurats were always built in very holy places, the places that they believed were some of the most holy places where the gods were and, and the gods lived. Um, in ancient times, um, the gods were always up. We would ascend to the gods. We would, um, we, we would meet God on top of a mountain in the same way that Moses met God on top of Mount Sinai. This is just how people believed about God. They, they, they looked at the stars, they looked at the sun, the moon, they believed that these were all gods in these ancient times. And so they believed, they called it the heavens, and they believed this is where all the gods lived. And so if you ever wanted to meet a god, you would go up. You wouldn't just stay where you are. You wouldn't go down. You would always build a tower and climb up to meet God there. Um, and so... This is sort of the context in which we are working. It, it's the only way that the ancient people understood how to meet with God. You would go up onto something. I think, I think personally, this is why God chose to meet uh, Moses on top of Mount Sinai, because it fit within their context of how to meet God. Um, and, and so God has a habit of working in ways that we understand. Um, and so God chose to meet them on top of the mountain. Um, but the thing is, God didn't go on letting them think that God was always up on top of high buildings and high mountains. Um, God slowly over time pulled them forward out of these ancient beliefs and taught them something different about himself. Um, at, at one point, God looks at his people and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build me a temple, a house among you in your midst. I don't want you to meet me on top of mountains anymore. I want to live where you live. I want to live in your cities. I want to dwell on the same place that you dwell. Um, and this would have been really unheard of anywhere else in the world um, from any other gods except for Yahweh. It was a very unique thing that the ancient Jews um, had, the relationship they had with their God. And it would slowly sort of be revealed to the, to the, to the Israelites over hundreds and hundreds of years that um, God wanted to permanently dwell with them. Eventually, he had them get rid of the sort of the temporary tabernacles, and he had them build a permanent um, temple. Um, and of course, all of this sort of culminates with Jesus, no longer a temple, but now one of us, the incarnation. God, so in ancient times, we start off with God being on top of the mountains, up in the heavens, and then we meet him on the mountains, and then God comes down and tabernacles with us, and then he gets a permanent tabernacle, and then he comes in the form of us. And now he gets even closer when he ascends and sends his spirit. And so God is always getting closer and closer and closer. And God is revealing to us how God sort of wants things to be as he establishes his kingdom here. It, it, sort, of, you know, it sort of takes a long time for us to really grasp what God is doing. And um, I think there's a reason that God worked very slowly over this amount of time to, to teach us about this, about how he wanted to live with us. Um, and so this dream is actually the very first hint that Yahweh is different, that Yahweh wants to come close to us, um, and he doesn't want to be thought of as far away. Instead, he wants to be close. And the author shows uh, this to us in these verses here. Um, it says this, uh, starting in verse 12, And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, um, on, the, on the ziggurat. Uh, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will Give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the, of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. Now, um, I have to start off by saying there's actually um, another. I'm not. I'm not 
sometimes I'm not happy with the ESV and how they translate some of the really Old Testament stuff. Um, they didn't do a very good, good job with one particular passage here, and pretty much every other scholar that I read says that um, basically when it talks about the Lord stood on top of it, it says um, angels ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. That's not really what the author is saying. Um, it, it, what it should say is actually more something like this, the Lord was poised over him is the general idea of what should be said. Um, and some of your other versions, if you're not using ESV, will actually say this. I think they got it a little more accurate. Um, that the Lord was poised over him. It's not that he was on top. Po- he was poised over him. Like, he was there with him. Um, and this, this really is important. It's not just this little thing. It, it actually changes the entire meaning of the passage if you do it wrong. Um, um, and mainly because uh, it, it matters a great deal because it has to do with the meaning of this passage and the meaning that Jesus himself, hundreds of years later, actually gave to this passage. Um, you see, when Jacob awakens from this dream, he's, he says something really fascinating. He says this. He says, Then Jacob awoke, up from, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Um, he wouldn't have been able to say God was in this place if God was up on top of the ziggurat. Um, and, and this is really important that he says this. The Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Um, Jacob had naturally assumed that God was at the top. That, um, I mean, actually, to begin with, he had assumed that God was not even in this place. This place was not important. This was not a holy place. This is not a place you would put a ziggurat. This is not a place where God would ever meet with anybody because nothing important had ever happened here. Um, until this time. Um, and ancient, peop- ancient gods never visited unimportant places that were inhabited by no one. And ancient gods never spoke to nobodies like Jacob. Ancient gods picked important places to go to, high places where his glory would shine. But here you have something different. Um, you know, Jacob was at, as the author says, a certain place, nowhere in particular, sleeping on a rock. Um, he had nothing, no extra clothes. He had spent his entire existence dressing up like someone else and trying to earn favor. Um, And all he ever wanted to be was somebody important. And suddenly, he finds himself in the middle of nowhere with nothing, and God shows up. A holy structure shows up. And instead of God requiring him to go up to meet God, God comes down and meets him. This changes the whole thing. It kind of takes the whole thing and puts it on its head. Suddenly, Jacob is the most important thing in the world, important person in the world. Um, he's suddenly in the most important place on earth. He's hearing the most important things that anyone could ever hear, and he deserves none of it. He didn't even have to do anything. He didn't have to climb the stairs. God showed up and said, I know you're nobody. I know you have nothing. You mean nothing to anybody, but here I am. This is where you are. Suddenly, I care about you so much that this is a holy place. Here is my ladder, and I'm coming down to you. And this is different. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. It was as if he never fathomed that the Lord would be here. You know, God only dwells in the temple, right? We're on top of Mount Sinai. And sometimes, you know, we hear Christians talk about um, going to church. We're going to go meet with God. We're going to, um, you know, make time to go to what we call the Lord's house. Um, and I, I think that's a little misleading because God is with us. God is here. He is wherever you are. God is there with you. And I want to remind you that the entire point, if, if you were here at the, at the beginning of Genesis when we were studying this, uh, some about almost 40 weeks ago now we started this, um, 
I went, went into great detail describing sort of the creation story and how it compared to the building of the temple. Because there's this meaning here. Um, if, you, if you put the creation story and the building of the temple side by side, you're going to see something incredible. You're going to see that they were pretty much the exact same instructions. Um, the, the way things were made with creation mirrored the way things were built with the temple. And this was all very, very theological and very, very important. Um, Here's a few of them. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we've been through this before. Um, basically, the temple took seven years to build. The earth took seven days to make. The word kala is used to describe both the completion of the earth and the temple. And it, it was a very specific word. Um, uh, in Exodus 39, we have Moses inspecting the temple to make sure that the work is good. And, and, and then in Genesis, we have God inspecting the temple, in, inspecting creation to make sure that's good. Um, we have the chief craftsman of the tab- tabernacle, Bezalel. Um, he's filled with the Spirit. Um, as he prepares to do his work. And at the beginning of Genesis, we have the spirit of God hovering over the face of the water as creation starts to be made. Um, We have uh, Moses blessing the people after they complete the temple in the same way God blessed um, all of the earth after he he had completed the the, uh, the creation of the earth. In the center of the garden, this is one of my favorites, we have the tree of life. Well, in the center of the Holy of Holies in the temple, you have um, the candle stand, which represented the tree of life in the middle of it. the curtains in the tabernacle, blue, purple, scarlet linens above. So when you walk in, you look up, and they're interwoven with angels, basically uh, representing the heavens when you walked into the temple. On the sides, you would see sort of floral, arboreal carvings on the sides. And so when you walked into the temple, it was as if you were walking into creation. You look around, and it looks like maybe the Garden of Eden was supposed to look. And you look up, and it was, and it's like you're inside, but it's, it's made to look like you're outside. It, it's, it's incredible. Um, and there's a reason that the story is told like this, because the message to the ancient Israelites is, you think you meet God in the temple. Well, I want you to know the earth is God's temple. God is everywhere. God is with you wherever you go. He is not just one place in particular. Do you know some people were actually not allowed to go into the temple? Women weren't allowed to go very far into the temple. Um, people who were not Jewish, of Jewish descent, were not allowed to go even as far as, as the Jewish women were allowed to go. Um, so I, th- I think this is something incredibly different where God tells us, no, I don't need a temple. I don't need any of that. I'm there with you. And so even scriptures say, actually, in Psalm chapter 78, it says, his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. Even saying that the sanctuary of God is built like the earth and the heavens which God founded forever. So, um, you know, so what was it that Jacob never realized? He never realized that God was already there in this place. God was not far from him. God was with him when he was going through his trials. God was there in the mundane places of his life, when you're nowhere, when you're nothing, when you're no one, um, because you, you are living in a place where God dwells, in his house, and the earth is the temple of God, the house of God. Um, Great Henry Thoreau, actually, um, I, this quote stuck out to me this week. I've never met a man who was fully awake. And I like that because it, it reminds me that I, 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 I rarely am, am awake to the idea that no matter where I am, God is there with me, loving me, guiding me, communicating with me, working all around me. Um, there's a man named Rabbi Kushner who, who actually writes about, um, I read earlier this week about his Um, because Moses sort of had the same thing that Jacob had. Moses was in the middle of nowhere, and God showed up in the form of a burning bush. Um, In other words, God was already there. 
same thing. It's, it's like we, we never really pick up on this. And he actually says this um, about this. He said, the burning bush was not a miracle. It was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention for more than a few minutes. And when Moses did, God spoke. The trick is to pay attention to what is going on around you long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. There is another world right here within this one. Whenever we pay attention. And I, I think it's a very simple idea, I, but, but I think it's something that we're missing far too often. The scriptures teach us that God is present in all places at all times. And this is reiterated over and over and over in scriptures. Acts 17 says, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even uh, um, as even some of your own poets have said, um, Psalm 139 says, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heavens, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, um, and your right hand shall hold me. See, Jacob, Jacob was really focused on things that didn't really exist. He was focused on his honor, his identity, his lack of wealth, who he wanted to be. And he focused on these things so much that he was completely oblivious to the fact that God was there with him, leading him and guiding him and communicating with him. And it's, it's as if he was so unaware that God was there that God finally said, all right, all right, I, I'm going to wake you up now. And God actually moved in a big way to show him, I am here with you. Are you not awake? How long will you just go through your mundane life before you realize that I am here with you, working all around you? When are you going to wake up and see it and maybe take part in it? So the question, I guess, is that we kind of get from this is, are you aware of God's presence all around you? I'm not, I'm not asking if you feel God's presence around you, although some of you I know have said that you do feel God's presence around you. Um, but even if you don't feel it, are you even aware that it's actually there, that God is here? I, I'm, I'm asking if you realize that right now God is closer to you than the air that you actually breathe. He is, he is more interested in you than anyone else in your life. He is more in love with you than your own lover. He is, um, you are in this moment being, being stared at longingly by someone that sort of has that feeling that maybe you have, if there's somebody that maybe you have a crush on and you're kind of staring from them, at them from afar, just wondering if they will notice you and, and you just can't stop looking at them and you're so enamored with them and so in love with them. And that, that, do you realize that someone is doing that for you now? There's a God showering you and desiring to love you right now. And so often we're just going through our mundane lives, not even looking around, not even realizing that this is happening. That right now, there's nothing you could do to actually be more loved than you are right now. There's nothing that you could do. The entire time that you are here, the entire time you are doing anything, driving to work or home or whatever, you are being submerged in an ocean of God's perfect love. It is all around you. And most people tend to look back on some certain moments when they prayed some prayer and they say that they surrendered their life to Christ. And we look back and I say, that was the day I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, we call it, and, and I surrendered my life to Christ. Um, but I think that this is a, a kind, of a, kind of a wrong way to look at, at Christianity, kind of, kind of a wrong way to look at our relationship with God because we look back at a certain time when we surrendered our life to Christ and it keeps us from surrendering right now, from realizing that God is here with us loving us, guiding us, doing things all around us, and we are not surrendered to it because that's something we did a long time ago. 
the only life that actually exists is, is this moment right here, this place, and God is asking you to surrender it to him now. And, and later, when you are somewhere else, he will be hoping and asking for you to surrender it to him again there. And, and this is how the Christian is supposed to live. There's a Jesuit priest um, in 1751 named Jean-Pierre Cassad, and he said this, all that matters is to belong totally to God, to please him, making our sole happiness to look on the present moment as though nothing else in this world mattered. You see, for a Jew, the temple was the one place where the physical and the spiritual realm came together. I mean, for, the, for, the, for most of Judaism, uh, of, of the early years of the Israelites, that's what they believed, that is there a place where God and, God and, and earth come together? Yes, it's in the temple, and that's it. There's smoke, there's fire, lightning, all this all this crazy stuff, because that's where God is. But if I'm the farther I am from the temple, God's not here with me. Um, what they didn't realize was that God was, show, was slowly changing how they think about spirituality, how they think about God himself. And, and the final lesson to shift their thinking came in the form of a man named Jesus. Um, and, and in John 1, Jesus is... So, the very first chapter of the, of the book of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus is walking around, he's calling his disciples, and he's saying, hey, follow me, hey, follow me, hey, follow me. He's picking random people that wouldn't ever hang out together. He's picking a zealot and then like a, a devout Jew, and these people would not like each other. But he's picking them all, just as, maybe as a joker. He's just picking all these people that wouldn't get along together. And he just put them all together and says, nope, this is how the kingdom's going to work. Um, wait one day until I build a church. Watch the weird people I mix in there. Um, <laughs> And so he's, he's picking all these people, and he picks this guy named Philip, and Philip has a friend named Nathaniel. Um, and so we kind of pick up a conversation here between Philip, who's just been called to follow Jesus, and Philip's friend Nathaniel. Um, and, and this is really interesting. He says this, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so he runs up to, to Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the Messiah the one that, that, that the prophets wrote about, the one Moses was waiting for. He's here. He's here now. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And look how he responds. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, you know, like, can, can anything good come out of there? I mean, it's like Newport Ritchie. It's not, uh, <laughs> I'm from Newport Ritchie. I know. All right. Um, can anything good come from there? Um, and, and so, so he's, working in the same, he's working in the same sort of mindset that Jacob was in. God's not going to meet me here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Nothing goes on here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Nothing matters. And so God shows up, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, God was here. Why was God here? That doesn't make any sense. And so the same thing's happening with Nathaniel. He says, Nazareth? Why would God come from Nazareth? He should come from Jerusalem. So watch what happens. Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus sees him coming. He says, Ah, oh, you're an Israelite, and you're an incredibly honest Israelite. And he, and he says to him, How do you know me? You know, it's sort of, it's sort of you know, Jesus could have heard this from maybe Philip. He could have heard from other people, you know, your reputation precedes you. Like, you are an honest guy. This is how people know you. He's like, Yeah, that's how people know me. But how do you know this about me? Um, and he says, um, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, this is great. Um, if you actually sit back and kind of think about this, uh, you have Jesus walking up. He's like, oh, 
I know you. You're, you're, uh, you're Nathaniel. You're an Israelite, and you're a very honest man. He goes, well, how do you know me? He goes, I saw you under the fig tree. And all of a sudden, his eyes get really, really huge. He's like, what? You saw me under the fig tree? And he goes, he, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Now, I think it's great that it doesn't tell us what he was doing under the fig tree. It doesn't tell us what he was doing. Apparently, it was something that he was shocked that Jesus saw. And Jesus didn't say, yeah, I saw what you're doing, and then say it. Maybe he couldn't say it because he's Jesus. Um, I don't know. He's doing something under the fig tree. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. We don't know. Maybe he was just thinking things. Maybe he was killing somebody. Who knows? But he's, he's under the fig tree, and God sees him. Jesus sees him, and he's shocked that Jesus saw him. Why was he shocked? Well, because just like God wouldn't be in Nazareth, God's not going to hang out under the fig tree. God's not going to be there. It's a fig tree. It's not the temple. It's nowhere important. It's just a fig tree. Um, and so this is when he realizes that God was there, when God was with him, that, that Jesus saw him. He realized who Jesus was, the Son of God. You know, God had no reason to be there under the fig tree, just like Nazareth. Uh, he wasn't anywhere important. And suddenly his eyes were open to the fact that God was everywhere, even under the fig tree, even in Nazareth. God is everywhere. Even, even when you were at your worst and darkest hour, God is there with you. Even when things are really great, God is there with you. When life is just mundane and you're not making it, God is there with you. And so we go a little farther and it says, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now watch this, because he references Jacob and the ladder. He says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending and de- ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, do you see what he's saying here? He's referencing Jacob and the ziggurat, and, and he's in the middle of uh, the, the, the ziggurat that he saw in the middle of nowhere. And he says, you know, God doesn't come down through ancient temples. God doesn't come down through ziggurats. God doesn't come down through the temple in Jerusalem. God comes down through me. Jesus says, God came down to earth, to you, through me. And, and Jesus says, I am the way to God. I am with you. And if you know me, then God is with you wherever you are. If you are with me, then God is with you. If you follow me, God is with you. Wherever you are, God is there. He is watching and he's listening and and he is speaking and he is working and he is acting. Even when you are making good decisions, even when you are making bad decisions, even when you are in joy and suffering and pain, God is there with you. And, And the problem is our eyes aren't open enough to see it. God doesn't meet us in church. He meets us in life. When we are nowhere, when we are nobodies, when we are in sin, when we are in righteousness, when we are suffering and rejoicing, God is with us. The question is, are you awake? Do you realize it? Are your eyes opened and are you surrendering to him in those moments? You don't have to be clean and sober and holy and in ministry for God to be with you. Right now, at this very moment, you are submerged in the love and the grace of God. And he is looking upon you with more love than you have ever looked upon anyone else with. And he's hoping that you'll think about him and and send a little of it back. And so I don't know what this is for, for you guys today. I don't know what each and every one of you are going through, but maybe there's something there. Maybe there's some times where you have felt abandoned by God. Maybe you don't understand what God is doing. 
Maybe you just feel like your, your life is just coasting. You have no future. You're in the middle of nowhere with nothing. I want you to know God is there. God sees. And he is working around you. And, and, and I hope that we can learn to be awake and aware of the work God is doing all around us and to take part in it. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to take a time of, of communion this morning. Um, this is one of the most important things that we do. Uh, this is when we take some time to repent of the things that, that uh, the ways that we have failed um, our God this week and uh, the ways that we have failed to live up to the, to the name Christian that we bear and the ways that um, we have willfully chosen to work against the kingdom of God instead of joining in it being established here. And so we're going to take some time and uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you don't take communion with us. If you are, though, you don't have to be a member of our church Please take communion with us. We would, we would welcome that. Just take a pe- we, we spend some time in prayer and repentance and uh, making things right with God. And then we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the, in the wine, and we eat it. And it's, the, the bread symbolizes the, the, the body of Christ broken for all of us. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And uh, it's, it's sort of symbolic of taking the gospel down inside of us and asking God to take it to the places where, it has yet, where we have yet to be touched with the gospel. So why don't we pray? Father, we love you. You're a holy God. You're a wonderful, righteous, perfect God. Thank you for uh, all the things that you have done for us. Thank you for the ways that you have grown this, this little community. Thank you for guiding us through the hard times, and thank you for uh, um, granting us some easier times as well. I ask now that you would help us to understand that you are here that there's nothing that we could do that could make you love us more than you do right now. I think so often we tend to try to do good works, good deeds, moral things to somehow earn the favor of, of a God who we don't need to earn your favor. You, you love us to the depths of our souls. And when you look at us, you don't see all of these terrible things. You don't see all of these sins. You see us hidden inside your son. And so you see perfection and you see goodness. Remind us that you are here, that you love us, that you are working around us. Thank you, God. In your name. Amen. Take some time and uh, talk to God this morning.